This morning, we have a guest speaker. Uh, Pastor Kurt is uh, leading the new church in Saskatchewan that we are working with, and uh, we've invited him here. He is our church's representative there, so we are trying to get to know him very rapidly, and one of the best ways for us as a congregation to know him is for him to be here visiting with us. So uh, greet him afterwards as you get an opportunity, and we'll welcome Pastor Kurt to come speak to us this morning. Good morning. It's, it's really good to see you all. If you have a Bible, please open to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 5. It's a, it's a joy to be here with you all and to be mutually uh, strengthened by you. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to, to getting to know you. Uh, and to see uh, evidence of the Lord's work in your life. Our, our text this morning is about assurance. Assurance ought to be where we, where we live as a Christian. Yet many Christians, Christians struggle with it. Especially when they sin and when they suffer. Maybe you can relate to the lyrics of this hymn. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief to, for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel, you feel prostrate in the dust. Maybe, maybe even last night, fell on your face again. The same sin you've been struggling with. Or maybe you're in deep suffering and you feel like it's hard to even look up to heaven. I, I've been praying that this text would be a comfort and a help to you to find all of your hope and your joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's, let's, look, at, let's look at God's word together. Romans 5, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. 
And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, help your people to understand your word. Please illumine our minds, Lord, that we might not only hear the words and, and understand them, but that we would believe them and that we'd, we would leave with joy knowing that Christ is king and that, and that uh, everything he does is working for our good and your glory, Lord. Please help us, Lord, because we are weak and we need your help. And so we ask that you would do it. We ask that you would, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the, in the fifth chapter of Romans. And the first word is, is therefore, which is often the case in Romans. And so Paul is arguing something from an argument in the past. He's connecting our text to what he's already said in Romans 1 through 4. So quick summary of what Paul has argued so far. Okay, he has an introduction. Then Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles are under sin. Okay, Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles are under sin. Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. The unbelieving world, probably most of us here, I'm guessing. The Gentiles were not given the law, but God has made, them, made himself known to them in creation. So Romans, Romans 1, 18 to 20 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, every unbeliever on the planet knows about God. They already know that God exists. Every single person, maybe you're an unbeliever here. You're like, well, I don't know that God exists. Well, in fact, you do, actually. And it, the Bible tells us you're actually suppressing the truth. That creation is actually proclaiming to you that you do know that God exists. If you go to an Oilers game, hockey game, you'll see many people with an Oilers jersey on. It's an easy talking point. Talk, to the Oilers, talk about the Oilers. Talk about hockey. You run into someone at the game. You're like, okay, I can obviously talk about hockey. You probably know who Connor McDavid is or someone other than that. And so you, you end up <laughs> discussing <laughs> that with them. Anyways, you talk with them, and you have this talking point. It's, it's actually the same thing that happens with unbelievers. So when you talk with them, they actually have this inherent sense that God exists already. And so you go to them, and they already have a creation around them. They don't have an Oilers jersey on, but they've got creation. You can point to creation and say, God made this. And they know that it's true. They're suppressing it, but they know it's true. 
And Paul actually argues that every unbeliever already knows they deserve to die. That's actually Romans 1.32. He goes on a list of sins here. Then he says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So actually, talking to an unbeliever, they actually know that they deserve to die because of their sins. That is a great advantage for you in your evangelism. You're already starting out with people that you can point to creation, say God exists, they know it, and they deserve to die for how they're living and for who they are. So the Gentiles are under sin, and they know they deserve to die. They cannot justify themselves by saying they don't know about God, so that they are not accountable. They do know about God from creation, and they suppress the truth. Okay, so Romans 1, Gentiles are under sin. Romans 2, the Jews are also under sin. The Jews are also under sin. Romans 2, verse 1, he's talking to Jews. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Okay, so what he's saying is, you've got these Jews who have the law, they're looking at the Gentiles, and they're like, you guys are so wicked. And then over here, they're also practicing the very same things, maybe in a different way. But, it, but in reality, they have the same sinful hearts. Paul gives a summary statement of his argument. The Jews and Gentiles are under sin in Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all people, both Jews and Greeks... Jews and Gentiles are under sin. So everyone's under sin. From, from Romans 1 to 3, you get this, this argument where Paul is trying to painstakingly show us that there is nothing you can do to get right before God. There is nothing that anyone has ever been able to do, Jew or Gentile. They are, they are sinners and they're unable to get to God and they are under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God. And so Paul leaves the reader at this point kind of wondering, how could a person ever get right with God? Like, I know the Gentiles can't, but the Jews, I mean, they have the law. Surely, surely they can get right with God. How can a person be justified before him? If we cannot justify ourselves, what chance do we have? And it's actually the most important question in the world that you could ask. How, how can you be made right with God? If you're, if you're unsure about that question, that's a dangerous place to be. How can I get peace with God? So Paul gives the answer in Romans 3, the rest of Romans 3 and, and 4. Gentiles under sin, Jews are under sin. Now, God saves sinners by grace alone through the work of Christ to be received by faith. That is a loaded statement, but I'll, I'll just show you it here. In, in uh, Romans 3, 21 to 26, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So propitiation, he absorbed the wrath of God. He took the judgment of God upon himself that we won't have to be under that curse of the judgment of God. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so the gist of this, obviously there's whole sermons on all of these sections here, but the gist of this is you cannot get right with God based on anything you bring to the table. You must Come to God based on what God has brought to the table in his son. You must trust in Christ and Christ alone. That is your only hope of being justified before God. And he does it as a gift. He forgives our sins and he bears the wrath of God to our sin by standing in our place. And then he clothes us in his righteousness. So there's no working before God that can overcome our sin. Instead, we must rely on what Christ has done. Okay, so we do this by faith. It's the last verse we'll look at before we get into our text. Romans 4, 4 to 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so maybe, maybe you're here today, and you're, you're ungodly. Maybe you're not saved. You, you have no desire for God. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you're here, and you are ungodly, and you're wondering, how in the world can I be right with God? Well, this text shows us that the ungodly can actually be saved. You actually can be saved, even if you're full of sin, even if your life is riddled with sin. You can come and be saved because Christ was a sufficient sacrifice. He paid fully for sin. And so, by faith, by trusting in his work, not your own, you can be justified before him. Or maybe you're here and you've been coming here a while or you've been coming to church a long time. But you actually, you actually don't believe any of this stuff. You're, you're kind of fooling everyone else. Maybe you're, you're here and you're, you're kind of like, well, yeah, I'm glad I'm here. Maybe people think you're saved, but you have no desire for Christ. I want, I want to assure you that, that God is not fooled. God is not fooled. The thoughts and intentions of your heart are not hidden before him. You, you will not stand justified before God on judgment day because everyone here is convinced you're saved. If you, if you have not actually rested your life on Christ, you will not be saved on the last day. So I want to encourage you, I want to urge you to repent. Repent and trust in Christ. You do not, Christ came very meek, and he is a meek Savior. But he's going to come back with vengeance to make war on his enemies. And so if you're an enemy, you want to repent and turn. He's a strong king who's going to come and judge and make war. 
And so repent and turn to Christ. He's a, he's a strong Savior. He's able to save you. You don't need to pick up your life and do better. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. You're weary and heavy laden. Come. Be saved. He will not turn you aside. Jesus will not cast you out if you come to him for mercy. He's able to justify the ungodly. Okay, so Gentiles are under sin. Jews are under sin. God saves us by grace. Based on the work of Christ. Okay, so the wrath of God due our sin was put on Christ. And that's, that's where we get to justification, really the first verse of chapter 5 here. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Okay, so we, we get justified, we get made right before God based on the work of Christ. He pays for our sin, and then he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his perfect life we might be clothed in. And, it, and notice it's past tense, okay? Verse 5, since we have been justified. This happened in the past. So every, every Christian who's truly a Christian has been justified. And they have peace with God already. This is the beauty of, of the gospel. We are at peace with God. We can approach God. And we have a positive righteousness before God. We are given the righteous life of Jesus. So we don't have to do anything more to get peace with God. And this is really important. It's really the basis of our assurance that we have been justified by God. God has done what we could not do for ourselves and has brought us to himself. Sinclair Ferguson said, Any way of salvation that depends on something that we must contribute can never bring assurance to us. For we can never be sure that we've done enough to help. Our assurance is based on what God has done for us. God has done it. God has done what we could not do for ourselves to make us right with himself. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time together looking at three truths from Romans 5 that, that really bolster or strengthen uh, the Christian's assurance. Three truths, our standing, our future, and our suffering. Okay, so first, our standing. Our standing is in grace. Our standing is in grace. That's verse 2. Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In which we stand. Okay, so through Christ, by our union with him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Because the Christian is united to Christ, you see that in verse 2, through him, okay? Through him, it's through union. We obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So every Christian here currently presently stands in grace. This is getting at the realm, the realm of which the Christian lives. The Christian always, permanently, invariably, stands in grace. It's where they stand. I remember watching the movie Home Alone uh, a while ago, um, but uh, 
I just remember the bad guys, they're always falling. They're, so, like, uh, you think the, the floor, I think, falls out from under them, and they go down a few floors. Uh, they step on marbles. I think they slip on paint. They slip on all sorts of things. But their footing is never sure. And that's what, you, that's what you think of with the bad guys. It's just, they just cannot stay on their feet. They're always falling. All the ice, too. They slipped on the ice out, out front. Their footing is never sure. But that's not the case for the Christian. Your footing is always sure. You always stand in grace. You're, you're in this realm of grace where you're right before God. It doesn't, your footing is sure. That's the beauty of it. That's what he's getting at here. We stand in grace, and we can't fall out of it. You see it in verse 2. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we stand now. And this ought to bring great delight to your soul. Throughout your week this week, think about this. The ground you stand on, how sure it is. You might be a little overweight, but you probably aren't going to fall through the earth. I hope not. But if you... It's more likely for you to fall through the earth than for you to fall away from grace. You stand there. It's a sure foundation based on the work of Christ. This is where the Christian lives. And this is where we, we ought to believe that we live there. This is where the whole Christian life is lived out, is in grace, in favor with God, able to approach the throne of grace anytime because of a great mediator. I love uh, Romans 8.32. If God did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? Because he didn't spare his own son, he did the harder thing by crushing his son, why would he withhold the blessings that his son bought? Approaching God's throne boldly. You can come boldly. In your sin, you can come boldly to an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. We must believe that we permanently stand in favor with God. Okay? Well, what if, well, you say, what if I sin? What about if I sin? God will surely be mad at me then, and I will no longer stand in grace. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, your sin, your sin that you just committed as a Christian, I'm talking brothers and sisters here, your sin has been purchased at the cross, past, present, and future. It's gone. God is never angry in wrath towards the Christian, in judgment towards the Christian. Jesus took all of that on the cross. And you don't have to work or do better to get favor with God. Jesus earned all of the favor that you could ever get. How could you ever add to that? And you are in him. Okay? And I'm not saying God doesn't discipline you, okay, when you sin. So God does, in a sense, show his displeasure toward Christians when they sin. There's a sense in which you should feel that. And he does. He disciplines you. He brings you back. But in reality, though, it's now as a father. You, you've been made a son, and so you can actually be turned back to God in grace as well. Okay, so if you're wondering, is God upset with me? Do I just need to do better? He's frustrated with me. Ask yourself this question. Is God upset with Christ? Because you are, you are in him. 
That's what, that's what the beginning of verse 2 is getting at, that through him, through him you have access to grace. And so if you are in Christ, if you've been united to him, God is not angry in wrath towards you. He is a father who disciplines, and sometimes it can be very severe. The discipline can be very severe. You could go on for a while about that, but, but that does not mean you don't stand in grace. It's a perpetual favor before God. If you are in Christ, there's no more wrath left for the Christian. And our standing in grace strengthens our assurance because we no longer fear the wrath of God when we sin. When we sin, we can still pray, Abba, Father. We can still pray, Abba, Father. And we can expect a fatherly response when we come to God through Christ. We can know that God will not bring you into judgment for that sin because he brought his son into judgment on your behalf. Our standing in is, is in grace. Second, our future. Our future is secure. This is the second half of verse 2. Our future is secure. Through him, so this is still through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you start the Christian life at peace with God. You continue the Christian life standing in grace. And then in the future, you look forward to the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And the idea of hope in the Bible is not just wishful thinking, like, I wish that the Oilers would win the Stanley Cup this year. Probably not going to happen. Might happen. Not sure. Okay, maybe it maybe will happen. Depends on your opinion. It's not like that, though. This is a sure hope. This is a sure hope. It's like looking back on when they already won. You, you know it's going to happen. The Christian hope is sure. It's more sure than even the sun rising tomorrow. It's not a gamble. This is a sure hope. And we rejoice in our future hope of glory. And that word rejoice actually literally means to boast or glory in. So we boast in the future of the hope of the glory of God. This is the Christian's boast. The sure hope of the glory of God. When you work a job, you expect a paycheck every couple weeks. Because you earned it. You're sure you will get paid. It's good because you can be sure. Maybe you can make your mortgage payment and maybe you won't starve to death. Okay, so it's good. You're sure about that. But the Christian knows that Christ worked on their behalf. Jesus did not do everything necessary to get you a paycheck. He did everything necessary to win your hope of the glory of God. To win your joy in God forever. Just so much better than a paycheck. There's no hope like this. You think about it. Okay, so you get a paycheck. It's going to give you some money for food. But it does not help you when you die. Paycheck may help you pay the bills. It's not going to help you on Judgment Day. You have to work for a paycheck. But Christ has worked for you, and his work was really good. You get a massive reward for someone else's work. And Christian, in Christ, you have an inheritance that is unfading and kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1.4. 1 
There's an unfading inheritance kept, being kept there for you. Well, you say, well, that's a long way off. How, how am I supposed to be excited about something that seems so far away? That I say, well, do you make time to think about your retirement savings? Do you make time to think about saving up for your kids to go to college or to get married? It's pretty far off. You still think about it. And these are good things to think about. But surely, it's better to look beyond that to the treasure you're going to have in heaven. This will strengthen your assurance when you live in a sin-stained world. If your mind is fixed on heaven and the glory that is coming there, that is going to change how you view and how you live life now. Ephesians 1.14 says, The Spirit of God himself is your guarantee of a future inheritance. So boast. Tell, this is, boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is something we can actually talk about. This is something that can come out of you regularly. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with God forever. Like, this, is just, this is better than anything in this life that you, could, that you could have. Think about all the lesser things that we boast about. Our skills to work a job. Maybe you're really good at your job. Well, how long is that going to last? 30, 40, 50 years? Eventually, you're not going to be very good at it. Or you're going to die. Our athleticism. I like sports. But if you didn't know, you don't get better at them over time. It starts getting worse and worse. And if you're not athletic, maybe you boast in your favorite sports team instead. But eventually, they won't be good, too. Teenagers, maybe you boast about being funny or how good-looking you are, how smart you are, what college you might get into. These things don't last. You will not look the same 50 years from now. Your brains may fail. Wouldn't you rather boast in, in the fact that your name is written in heaven? Your name is written in heaven. This is what Jesus said. Don't even, don't even boast that the demons and the spirits obey you. Boast that your name is written in heaven. You're going to get to be with God for all of eternity. And he is going to bring you into joy unspeakable, the hope of the glory of God. Psalm 1611, in God's presence there is fullness of what? Joy. God's presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So boast in that. Boast that you're going to be with God forever. Our standing and our future strengthen our assurance. Lastly, this one might, might surprise you, our suffering. Our suffering. Our suffering produces hope. Okay, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, so as if it could get better, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. And these, these kind of seem like odd verses, maybe, to you. Don't they? You, re you rejoice in, in that which hurts you? 
But notice it's not even commanded. This is assumed. This is what Christians do. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice. This is, we boast. We, we boast in our sufferings. This is what we do. This is what we do as Christians. When we're born again, we actually boast in suffering. It's an indicative. It's not an imperative. So it's not a command. This is just what Christians do. And this is really something the world knows nothing of. They know nothing of peace with God. They know nothing of standing in grace or future glory. But they definitely, like think about your friends at work or people that you know, they definitely know nothing of boasting or glorying in their own suffering. That's an impossible category for an unbeliever. How can you boast in your suffering? How can people boast in things that hurt them? Well, here's how. We can boast in suffering because we know what it is producing in us. Suffering is not an end in itself. It's a means to our holiness and our hope. It's a means to our holiness. Think about it. If you really want to grow in self-control, okay, with anger. Maybe you struggle with anger. You want to grow in self-control. How is it going to be helpful for you if you never get into a situation where you're pressed and where you normally get angry, you get into that situation again, how is it not going to be helpful if you don't ever have those trials come? If they don't come, how are you supposed to know you're growing? Okay, think about patience, too. Same sort of thing. I, with Hudson, we have a five-year-old and a one-year-old. And with Hudson, especially when he was in his, the twos there, there was just a lot of correction needing to happen, okay? And it Maybe 10 times in a day, I think I'm pretty patient. And then the 10th time, he does the same thing. Oh, I'm not patient. Lord, help me. <laughs> I, I need endurance. I, I realize I'm actually not patient, and it exposes what's in your heart. And then you love the suffering that comes because you know it's going to expose that sin in your heart, and you're going to be more holy because of it. That's, that's how it works. Maybe, maybe for you, you, you lose a job. You have no idea how you're going to provide for your family. But you find yourself praying and asking God for help. And you continue to trust God. And you endure. Maybe not perfectly, but on an upward trajectory. And God, God produces character in you. This is how it works. That's what's getting at in verse 3 there. Not only that, we boast in our sufferings because knowing, because we know something, we know that suffering produces endurance. Verse 4, and endurance produces character. Okay, so we know that this is what it's doing. This is good for us. This is going to produce the character that I've been praying about. I've wanted to be more godly in this way or that way. And this suffering is a means to that end. So I, I boast in it. And that doesn't mean you have to say, like, I, I love suffering all the time. It doesn't mean that. But it, it does mean that there's, a, there's an inner joy that you know God is, God is doing this for a purpose in your life. Okay, I understand suffering is good for me as a Christian, but how do I boast in my suffering? I still don't enjoy it. So how do I boast in it? When I, when I got to Southern Seminary in Louisville, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as they always said there, that was a big deal. Anyways, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I'm like, I'm going there because I'm going to be prepared for ministry. 
and I'm going to learn Greek, I'm going to learn Hebrew, I'm going to learn theology, church history. So excited about this. And it's true, I learned those things, very helpful for ministry. But when I was praying, I remember just praying, Lord, please prepare me for ministry. I, I don't know exactly what this is going to take. And, and I remember the Lord brought like, particular suffering into our life while we were in seminary. We had infertility in between Hudson and Haddon. And uh, for two years, we tried to get pregnant. And eventually we did, after two years. And then, and then 11 weeks in, we had a miscarriage. And, uh, I mean, we were so excited when we got pregnant and then so devastated once we had a miscarriage. And I remember just going home and just, just crying with Janet. And uh, I didn't have any answers anymore. I couldn't, church history wasn't helping me. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't helping me with my, my suffering. But, but through the process, through prayer, and just seeking the Lord and just begging for help, just desperate, really. Learned endurance. And it produced character. And now, we're at this place now, I cannot go back to the person I was before that. I cannot be that person again. That person's gone. Through the suffering, endurance, character. Now I'm a new, I'm a new person. And so, even though it was extremely difficult, I boast in that suffering. Because I know what it produced in me. And that God knows better than I do how to produce proven character in my life. So think back, think back on your years. I'm not the same person I was, but what about you? Have you seen through your suffering how the Lord is bringing you through, Christian? This is what he does. This is what he does. This is how you can embrace suffering in the hardest times. You know that it's producing proven character in you. And I want to, I actually want to make a distinction here. This is not, this text is not teaching a, like a work salvation or a work sanctification, aka if you suffer perfectly, God will change you and you will be sanctified by it. But you have to be perfect. No. Instead, this text demonstrates that a truly born-again Christian, a justified Christian, will endure suffering. They will. They will make it through. Because God will not allow them to fall away in the midst of it. And after you are done suffering, if you are truly saved, you will look back on your life and see how God has used it to produce something in you. And so this is, this is the confidence that we have in suffering, is that God is not going to completely crush you. He is not going to destroy you to the point where you're gone and you don't believe anymore. If you are truly a Christian, this will just produce refining that you will become more godly because of it. So you can boast about your sufferings because you know unshakably what they are producing in you. Okay, so when you lose that job, you go through infertility, when you're lonely in old age, when cancer hits, do not despise the suffering because it's, it's a means by which God strengthens your assurance Pray for God's help to endure it. God will produce character in you. And then, that's actually not the end of how this verse ends. When this happens, you'll actually have hope. So it ends in hope. And hope will not put you to shame. Okay? So you'll not be put to shame in the last day because God has loved you. That's, that's the next argument here in verse 5 at the end. 
he says, endurance produces character, verse 4. Character produces hope, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. So this verse is not just simply saying that he's loved us in the past, actually. It's saying that God is continually reminding us of his love for us at the end of suffering, basically, through the Holy Spirit who he's given us. So it's, a, it's called a perfect. So it's the past and also continuing in the future. So as you suffer through trials, God regularly reminds you of his love for you by the Holy Spirit who's in you. And the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. He reminds us of Christ. That's actually what verses 6 through 11 are about, about the work of Christ. We're not going to talk about that. But this is a reminder and a comfort that you will not face judgment on the last day. You have true hope. This is actually producing character in me. You look back on your life, and you're like, oh, I'm actually changing. I'm actually growing from this suffering. Now I have hope that I'm truly converted. That's the idea. So if you look back on your life, as a Christian, you can probably see some of this. When you're in the midst of suffering, you don't see it. It just, a lot of times, it's just a fog. Like, I don't understand what's going on. This is really difficult. Lord, help. But then you look back, maybe five years later or something, and you're like, man, I'm a completely different person because the Lord has done that in me. And then that gives you hope that the Lord is, in fact, inside you, that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, working in your life. God does indeed love you. As, the, as I close here, I'm just going to read this, this hymn here, as the hymn puts it. It's How Firm a Foundation. It says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? In this part, listen to this. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. End quote. Brothers and sisters, don't despise suffering. God is using it to refine you that you might have hope. And this we consider, consider where you stand. You stand in grace, Christian. Consider the surety of your future. The glory of God is coming. And consider your suffering and the hope that it is producing in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us believe it. Lord, this is a wonder that even our suffering is working for our good. Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen your people by your word. You'd strengthen us this week to also proclaim the excellencies of Christ to others around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.